This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Hey, y'all. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Today, I want to dig into a face-off that I have not been able to stop thinking about. Last week, a spectacle unfolded in front of reporters inside the Supreme Court of the United States. After handing down a decision that overturned what we call affirmative action, two justices got up to speak their piece. It was a battle of words between Justice Clarence Thomas, who opposed affirmative action, and Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who was in favor. And just to put a finer point on how unusual this was, Clarence Thomas has not once in 30 years spoken from the bench when issuing a concurring decision. Both justices were deeply invested in this decision because they were both beneficiaries of affirmative action. Justices Thomas and Sotomayor were each admitted to Yale Law School under the same affirmative action policy and attended only a few years apart in the 1970s. So how is it that two people can have the same experience and land at drastically different conclusions? And what does their divide say about how Americans become polarized? I called up Ron Elving, senior editor and correspondent on NPR's Washington desk, and Leah wright Rigger, professor of history at Johns Hopkins, to discuss what the loss of affirmative action means and how political paths diverge. Stay with us. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how her team makes an impact. We always do what we like to think of as actionable science. So the work that we do makes its way to things like nutrition and physical activity guidelines for cancer.org, where millions of people come each year to learn about how they can better prevent cancer. To learn more, go to cancer.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore. Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore makes products that stand the test of time and hope to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives, empowering your best life in clothing that can be worn for just about any activity from running to yoga. Visit viore.com slash NPR to receive 20% off your first purchase and enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75. Discover the versatility of Viore clothing. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Leah, Ron, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. I want to focus today on two Supreme Court justices, Clarence Thomas and Sonia Sotomayor. So last Thursday, both of these justices stood up to share their opinions. Thomas in support and Sotomayor in dissent. And this was rare. What's your take on the two of them duking this out? Leah, I'd like to hear from you first. I think this is absolutely to be expected. 
And I think it is a reflection of the two wildly divergent paths that recipients of affirmative action can take because they have both been institutionalized by their experience in affirmative action. They both have used affirmative action as a launch pad for varying ideas that have been deeply influential, not just to their paths, but to their careers and to how they ended up on the Supreme Court. So the fact that they both would speak from the bench and the fact that they would be at opposite ends, it's kind of the natural cycle of this story of affirmative action from two people who were beneficiaries of affirmative action. In a sense, um, it is the ultimate success of, of a policy such as this with inclusion that it should eventually include enough people that you would get at the full spectrum of opinion on such a subject. Hmm. I've been thinking so much about the similarities between Justices Thomas and Sotomayor. I mean, Thomas is the second Black justice on the Supreme Court, and Sotomayor is the first Latina. Obviously, they come from different backgrounds, but they're not far apart in age. They're only six years apart in age. They're from the same generation, and they both experienced stark racism and poverty as children. And they both ultimately ended up at Yale Law School because of affirmative action. They attended only five years apart. But bearing that in mind, how differently they both look back on that experience now. Leah, what do we know about how Thomas experienced affirmative action and how he thinks about it today? So one of the things Clarence Thomas talks about all the time is how badly he was treated by his white classmates at Yale Law School for being the beneficiary of affirmative action and how that racism and how that experience stuck with him and how the stigma of affirmative action burdened him moving forward. And I think it's articulated through this rejection of affirmative action, where he says the stigma of it and the racism that I, in the mockery and the, you know, the unrelenting accusations from my white classmates tells me that no future generation should have to experience this. He compares it to segregation. I've seen a quote where he compares it to slavery. Right. (laughs) And what's fascinating about this, though, is as Thomas talks and documents his experience, I don't think it's that out of step with the majority of people who are affirmative Mm. action beneficiaries. People will talk all the time about how people accuse them of being unqualified, of only being there because of their race. And I think it's fair to say if experiences in predominantly white spaces of racism can radicalize underrepresented minorities, Black, Latino, even Asians— then it's also fair to say that those same experiences can radicalize people in the opposite direction. Hmm. Thomas has a radicalizing experience where it pushes him away from affirmative action. He says these things are harmful. Whereas somebody like Sotomayor says, no, the real harm comes from the white people in the structural racism that they are replicated in their opposition to it. Hmm. I'm glad you brought that point up. I imagine that it's not just true for a Supreme Court justice, but it's also it can also be true for the average person, too. I wonder, what do marginalized people get out of buying into more conservative values that on paper, right, wouldn't seem to serve their marginalized group? Like, how does that work as a response to oppression? It's all about influence and power. And I think it is true, particularly if you read Thomas, 
that he has a deeply cynical view of white society. But there are ways to manipulate that system in order to be the beneficiary of the various avenues of, and powers. And one of the things that he's been very clear at is that he doesn't disapprove of nepotism. He doesn't disapprove of legacy, things like legacy admissions, right, or, or good old boys clubs. He wants to be a part of that. And so I think there is a prevailing strain of attaining influence and power that we rarely think about. We call it opportunism. I think with Thomas, we refer to it as tokenism or, you know, we say he's a sellout or something like that. But we assume that the power only goes one way, that Thomas is dancing to somebody else's song, right? Mm -hmm. But I think if we flip it and we say, what happens when we give Clarence Thomas agency? We can then begin to look at kind of the vast spectrum of what he gains by embracing these values. He Mm. has, in a way, transcended racism by sticking to those core conservative values. I mean, he sits on the most powerful court in the nation, unpunished, unblemished, (laughs) and he does what he wants. It's clear he enjoys the special immunity that attaches to being on the Supreme Court. Now, there is an ethics code for federal judges, but it's administered by the Supreme Court and they exempt themselves, in essence. They (laughs) self-report all of their potential ethical question marks. And as we've seen in some of this extraordinary reporting from ProPublica that most all of us have picked up on, the justices simply don't self-report. They take extraordinary luxury vacations on the dime, the dime, too small a number, uh, they, they, they take luxury vacations paid for by billionaires who obviously have views on many things that come before the Supreme Court because virtually everything does. So mm. that is not even reported. Hmm. I want to turn towards Sotomayor right now. She has a completely different view of her time at you know some of the most hallowed institutions, not in this country, but in the world, at Princeton, and also, as with Clarence Thomas, at Yale Law School. She has called herself the, quote, perfect affirmative action child. And she feels like the practice opened doors for her. Ron, what do we know about her view on affirmative action and how it has evolved or not or developed over time? She seems to feel a certain obligation to be worthy of everything that it made possible for her. Now, again, these are opportunities. They weren't achievements. Her achievements are all her own. But the opportunity was there in a certain way for her, and she knows of what value that was to her, and she wants to build that bridge for more people, for lots more people, for generations of people, for as long as it takes. And that is the exact opposite of the viewpoint that Clarence Thomas has been taking. It sounds like Clarence Thomas's strategy could be read as one that is looking for power for himself as an individual, whereas as you've just described Sotomayor's approach, it sounds like could be characterized or described as seeking power for the wider group. I think Sonia Sotomayor is interested in seeking power for the collective. She talked about not just the legacy of inequality, but also how we have not solved the problem of inequality. As long as there is continuing discrimination, as long as there is inequality, as long as those doors remain closed, we need affirmative action. And I think Sotomayor 
is interested in the collective and making sure that door stays open. I want to go back to where we started, back to the courtroom where Thomas and Sotomayor were seen in a rare debate when reading their decisions about affirmative action. What strikes me is that there is nothing really new in their debate, you know, and yet they seem even further apart than ever. What does that picture of Thomas and Sotomayor say about where we are as a public? Lee, I'd like to hear from you. Oh, man, that is a that is a tough that's a tough one. I think one of the things coming out of the the court's decision is that everyone on the court understands that that higher education is the access point for upward mobility and success, right? Like like you need you need colleges and universities in this country. What's also apparent is that there is an understanding from all of the justices that colleges and universities and education in this country is patently unfair. And so we know that the American public feels the same way about this. Essentially, the Supreme Court has left us with a dilemma. It's not clear to me that the justices, in fact, the justices say they don't know how to deal with this going forward. But here we are. That That's right. Here we are. And there's no question but that education, to begin, is is the entry to full participation in the economy, full participation in the civic life of the nation, just as education. And we used to more or less think people had enough if they'd had high school. That was quite an achievement to graduate from high school not that long ago. And probably no asset of our culture has been more carefully protected and handed out with more prejudice than the higher education of the highest prestigious institutions. The legacy and all the rest of it. It has been reflective of all the unfairness of life, all the unfairness of our society. And this effort, affirmative action, is probably the most concerted effort, aside from perhaps the student loan program, to truly democratize this most extraordinary asset and truly democratize how it gets distributed. So Mm -hmm. this has to be seen as a setback to that effort, but it doesn't have to be the final setback. This was a great conversation. Thank you both so much for joining me. Ron, Leah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Brittany. Thank you. Thanks again to NPR's Ron Elving and Professor Leah Wright-Rigger. Coming up, Breaking down model minority myths and admissions for Asian Americans. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com switch.
What does it mean to be black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as black experiences, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcast. So we've covered the justices, but next, I want to turn to the student who became the poster child for ending affirmative action this go-round. Calvin Yang. Yang was made the face of the movement by legal strategist Edward Blum, who founded Students for Fair Admissions, or SFFA, the advocacy group that sued Harvard, saying its race-conscious admissions disadvantages Asian applicants. After the Supreme Court ruled in Calvin Yang's favor last week, he had this to say. Today's decision has started a new chapter in the saga of the history of Asian Americans in this country. It's certainly a new chapter, but is it really the win that Yang and his supporters had hoped for? And will it actually benefit Asian American students? To unpack this, I've got an esteemed guest, Janelle Wong director of the Asian American Studies Program at the University of Maryland. Janelle, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Thank you so much for having me, Brittany. Oh, my absolute pleasure. So let's get right into it. Before this most recent affirmative action case, there had been others. And it's interesting to see and compare who has been the face of these cases. There was Jennifer Gratz at the University of Michigan in the early 2000s. There was Abigail Fisher at the University of Texas. And now for the first time, the public face of this case is not a white student. This time we had Calvin Yang, an Asian Canadian man. How does having a young man of color, specifically an Asian man, at the center of this case changed the way the argument was constructed or even how this case was understood by the public? So yes, the big difference this time is the role of Asian Americans. So I think of this case as the model minority goes to court. Hmm. That's interesting. The model minority goes to court. Say more about that. So Edward Blum and SFFA mobilized the idea that Asian Americans have a unique value and commitment to education that they had to score higher on tests than other groups. There was no evidence of that Hmm. to get into Harvard. But this narrative really resonated with the court and with the conservative justices because it was already part of the kind of national discourse around testing, around who deserves to get into highly selective colleges and universities. This is really part of a strategy that Edward Blum used. He intentionally recruited Asian Americans. So it's interesting. So it sounds like what you're saying is that like a cornerstone of the argument of this Supreme Court case is this idea that Asian Americans are more studious, better performing in school naturally. But you've talked before about how this is not natural or true at all. So as Ellen Wu writes about so clearly, the model minority myth was originated by Chinese and Japanese families in the 1940s. Asian American community leaders presented this narrative that Asian Americans were kids were super studious and never got into trouble. Like what kids never get into trouble, right? (laughs) It's a normal part of being a kid, sure. (laughs) This was a very different time in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Those Asian Americans were trying to convince whites that they were not a threat 
Remember, this is a time when Chinese and Japanese in the U.S. were seen as a threat in terms of both labor competition and bringing foreign elements like communism into the U.S., like spying Mm. during World War II, right? There were fears of this disloyalty. So as the Black freedom movements grew Mm. during that time in the 1950s, and whites became more and more uncomfortable with Black demands for justice, they used the model minority stereotype, this perfect narrative, as a counterpoint to Black demands, arguing that Asian Americans were a non-white group that faced racism, which they did and do, but that they were also overcome racism through hard work and valuing education. Left out of the conversation was the specific history and nature of anti-Black racism and, importantly, immigration laws that had long and would continue to select for the most educated Asian immigrants, which only further fueled the myth that Asian Americans care more about education than other people. There's just no evidence for this. Lots of research shows that Black students and their families care as much about education as others, mm-hmm. and that they invest as much in education as hmm. others, hmm. even more so than Asian Americans in some studies, once you control for parental education and parental wealth. Hmm. And what you're saying is that this idea really dates back to like the 1950s, essentially, in this model minority myth. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's powerful and long-reaching. It's powerful. It is tenacious. It is very tenacious. You know, um, my colleague Julie J. Park has made this argument that the reason it has carried the day is because it's really confirmation bias based on a stereotype. Hmm. It's not just a stereotype about Asian Americans. It is also a stereotype that has long been used to discipline Black students and Black families who have been trying to improve access to education. Much research shows that Asian Americans who buy into the idea that Asian Americans are harder working and care more about education than other groups while ignoring all of the kinds of structural barriers that other non-white groups face, that those Asian Americans who internalize the model minority myth are also more likely to exhibit anti-Black attitudes, are more likely, not surprisingly, to be more skeptical of affirmative action policies. So we've been talking about the model minority myth. Where does that show up in the decision? I saw most clearly on page 40 of Justice Thomas's concurrence, and he cites the now debunked quote-unquote, mismatch theory, and says that affirmative action places Black and Hispanic students into environments where they are less likely to succeed relative to their peers because they are not prepared. And then goes on to say it is, quote-unquote, self-evident why this is so. He says, quote, academic advancement results from hard work and practice, not mere declaration, unquote. So here, Black and Latin A students are assumed to be less academically deserving because they're not working as hard as Asian American students. There's just not evidence to support this assertion. He's been making this assertion for many years, especially because he is 
also shielded in some ways from some of the charges of white supremacy that I was talking about. That's a really, really good point. I hadn't thought of it exactly that way, specifically as a Black man who benefited from affirmative action policies. Yeah, there is sort of a shield there, as you've described it. It kind of creates at least a filter for certain types of criticism, or at least some people might not feel comfortable critiquing him, like his identity and his past educational experience offers some cover. I mean, at the same time, he makes this assertion that the policy itself, affirmative action, is damaging to Mm. Black Americans and Black students because they will be stigmatized as affirmative action beneficiaries, when in fact, public opinion data show very clearly the majority of Black Americans support this policy. They are not afraid it's going to damage them. They're well aware that colorblind is blind to systemic racism. Something that came up earlier that it's interesting to call back to now is this idea that the negative opinions that you may receive from other people, that you don't deserve to be somewhere, that you don't deserve to have a certain job, or that you haven't earned your spot at a a highly selective college, I feel like that argument heavily relies on the idea that someone's negative opinion of you greatly outweighs your Ivy League degree. (laughs) I just, I hate to laugh. I just don't know if that's true. I've never been to an Ivy League school, so I have no clue. I'll get into Harvard right quick and report back, but (laughs) (laughs) I just don't know. Anyway, SFFA and those arguing this case asserted this idea that affirmative action was harmful for Asian American college hopefuls. How true is that? So there was very little evidence. And, you know, you can look at one of the schools in these cases, Harvard. And over the last 20 years, the proportion of Asian American students at Harvard has grown quite a bit. Over the last years, we have seen Asian American representation at Harvard and other elite universities increase exponentially over the period in which race-conscious admissions, affirmative action has been in place. I would say Asian Americans are doing very well under affirmative action. I would also say that there are groups in the Asian American community that benefit from the consideration of race when their test scores are not high. And there's a lot of variation, as you know, within the Asian American community. With groups that have come as a result of refugee policies, those groups, Vietnamese, Cambodians, Hmong Americans, now Bhutanese, Burmese, these groups are Asian American. They have Asian American values, but they are not the highest scoring when it comes to tests. Hmm. But considering the racial identity of these students as Asian American refugees, certainly does benefit them. We've established that affirmative action has been beneficial to many Asian American students. With the end to affirmative action in all these public institutions, what do you think will happen to Asian American students in the future? So, so much of a college experience is interacting with people who are not like oneself. Right. And so part of what happens to Asian Americans is that even if their numbers increase a little, they will certainly be bereft of understanding the world as it is in all of its diversity. In California, when affirmative action was banned, 
economic research shows that maybe a few more Asian Americans got into Berkeley and UCLA, but it wasn't overwhelming. And there was almost no increase in terms of economic outcomes for those Asian Americans. Hmm. What happened, though, was that for decades later, we saw that Black and Latino students who were no longer applying to or having the same Hmm. chances of getting into the top UCs, it really did affect economic outcomes. And so we're talking about a generation of just increased socioeconomic division, potentially, Hmm. Hmm. and all the kinds of feelings between racial groups that will come of that. Hmm. Now, what you're getting at with this is something that I've been thinking about a lot with the current affirmative action discourse as it's unfolding right now. A natural outcome of this current moment around affirmative action is that it seems to pit Asian Americans against other American people of color. So the idea of this political and racial divide isn't new, but it's still very potent as a political tool. Talk to me about that. It is really, really powerful. And I am starting to see the ways in which this idea of especially Asian Americans being complicit in the tearing down of opportunities for people of color as a narrative that will be with us much longer, I fear, than the discussion over SFFA and Ed Bloom. So for instance, I just saw an article today about a move for reparations for Black descendants of slaves in California. Yes. And the headline was about how Asian Americans and Latine folks posed a barrier to this movement. And, you know, I think that we as Asian Americans need to just be a lot more thoughtful about how we enter debates over opportunity and especially opportunities that are so closely tied to racial justice because the future looks really grim to me if even a small number of Asian Americans are going to play this role of the spoiler. And that is Claire Kim's terminology, being racial spoilers when it comes to racial justice. is You don't need everybody, but some racially conservative Asian Americans can really do a lot of damage to the Rainbow Coalition, to solidarity. Black people in this country have been willing to stand up against structural racism for Asian Americans. And I really fear what it means for the future if Asian Americans aren't willing to do the same because it is the right thing to do. Janelle, thank you so, so much for joining me today. It was great to talk to you. Great to talk to you. Thanks so much. That was Janelle Wong, Director of Asian American Studies at the University of Maryland. Hi. 
Hi, Brittany. This is Veronica from New York, and I am all into this story that's happening with Kiki and her baby's daddy. You know, as a mom who has a community about moms making a work and reclaiming our identity, I really did not appreciate what he did about shaming Kiki publicly, especially after she just gave birth to their beautiful son. And she is carrying that postpartum body in all of her glory, just looking beautiful doing it. That's a conversation that should have stayed between them. As our Auntie Tab said, that's their business and shouldn't have been on the socials. <laughs> Hi, Veronica. Thank you so much for calling in and asking me about this situation this week with Kiki Palmer and the father of her son. I just had to let out a sigh because the situation has given me a headache and I only get about two headaches a year. Now, the situation unfolded this week where Kiki Palmer wore a very beautiful, I thought very elegant, cute dress to go see Usher play at his residency in Vegas. She went with her girlfriend. She was having a good time. He comes over to her. He's serenading her and they kind of share an embrace. She sings a little bit on mic. And she was really in her glory, enjoying her moment. And then the father of her son, Darius, the next day, as he sees this clip of Kiki and Usher together and everyone's complimenting how amazing she looks and how she looks like she's having so much fun. I don't know what drove Darius to get on social media and decide to speak his piece, but he retweets this video on social media and says something to the effect of like, it's the outfit for him. That's an issue. He says, you a mom, you're a mom. You shouldn't be out here dressing like this. At first, people thought it was a joke. And then he doubled down, doubled down in a separate post that said something to the effect of, you know, as a traditional man, I don't want to see the mother of my son out gallivanting about town in a revealing outfit and, you know, hugged up all on Usher. This ignited a social media firestorm. This man was getting clowned by people across the continents, across all time zones. From what I understand, Kiki and her boyfriend, alleged boyfriend, have unfollowed each other on social media. Now, I agree with you. I thought that this was something that was a conversation that didn't really need to be had in public. Me, myself, personally, I don't know if I could be in a relationship with somebody who was going to tell me what I could and could not wear or whether or not if Usher came to serenade me, if I could not hug him and press my body to his. That's not a relationship for me. But I agree. I think that maybe the thing that bothered me the most was Darius's assertion that if you are a mother, if you're a parent, that you can't decide to dress sexy, to have fun, to go out with friends, to enjoy yourself, and also to enjoy the attention that other people might give you for being like a bodacious and exciting and alluring woman. I have been so tired this week with men telling femmes how they can enjoy their own bodies and have a good time. This week, we saw Uncle Luke of Two Live Crew fame, famous for songs with such titles as Me So Horny. He was shaming Janelle Monet for pulling out one of her breasts at Essence Fest during a performance that aired, I think, at 1 a.m. Eastern. No children were up to see this, honestly. I feel like it's just retrograde and I'm not here for it. So that's my thought on the whole topic. I just feel like just let us live. Thank you again so much, Veronica, for calling in with that question. It has been on the minds and hearts of, frankly, all of America this week, for better or worse. So thank you so much. And to all of you listening, I want to know what you want to talk about, too. Anything from the biggest pop culture story of the week 
to the newest bangers, to the TV show everyone is talking about. If there's something everyone in your world is going on about, record a quick voice memo with your first name, location, and the topic, and send it to ibam at npr.org. That's I-B-A-M at npr.org. I cannot wait to hear what you want to talk about. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Barton Girdwood, Alexis Williams, Liam McBain, Corey Antonio Rose. Our editor is Jessica Plachek. We have fact-checking help from Will Chase. Aida Purasan. Engineering support came from Neil T. Vault. Kwesi Lee. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of programming is Yolanda Sanguini. Our senior VP of programming is Anya Grundman. All right. That's our show for today. I'm Brittany Luce. See you next week for another episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture Card. Earn unlimited 2x miles on every purchase. Plus, earn unlimited 5x miles on hotels and rental cars booked through Capital One Travel. Your next trip is closer than you think with the Venture Card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little breaks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.